Hey, welcome to another episode of the O-Bio podcast. My name is Sofia, your host. I'm a biotech communicator becoming a biotech developer. I... I'm working on some projects, including Got Microbiome Science or iGEM. I'm working on biofertilizers there and also exploring the scaling of biomaterials. So for this episode, we will be talking about longevity, specifically a longevity startup called Acorn. What they do there is take a sample, like a hair sample, and then find the stem cells that you have there so you can store them for when you need them. Okay, so um, that's the startup that Steven, the guest for this episode, founded when he was still an undergraduate student, Um, but we're going to confirm that later. And well, what I find to be interesting about that biotech company now is that the business model, I think, was the interesting part for Y Combinator people because, you know, Y Combinator is the largest startup accelerator in the world. It is, uh, you know, kind of prestigious is what a lot of young startups aim to be at because, well, you get like funding and you get knowledge and advice from mentors and you also get a be there in Silicon Valley, I believe. Maybe not right now because of COVID, but it's, um, yeah, kind of the experience that a lot of startups aim to have. And well, yeah, Steven's startup entered Y Combinator in a very unconventional way. So we're going to be talking about his experience and also about his early days as an iGemmer at the University of Waterloo. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. So let's get started. Hi, Steven. Thank you very much for, for coming. I'm very excited to talk with you about your experience as, a, as an iGemmer, as a startup founder, going through YC and longevity and those uh, things. So welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> sure. So I guess that aside from the biotech side, I would like to know you a little bit more. You know, what are your hobbies? Skateboarding, I've heard. There you go. Yeah, skateboarding. So, um, yeah, weirdly enough, I've skateboarded for, like, 18 years of my life, which hints back to my, like, pre-nerd life. It's one of the <laughs> vestiges that has survived through that. Um, and I like it. It's kind of like an individual sport that you can do at any time at your own pace. And, like, it's kind of good exercise. Um, and then I, I snowboard as well in the winter. Uh, I've gotten into mountain biking recently and, like, hiking and that kind of stuff. Living in Vancouver really is kind of nice for all those things. Uh, and then I like to play the piano, mostly just casually. You know, like, you hear a good song on the radio and you're like, wow, I really like singing to that. And, like, it's got <laughs> some good piano in the background. And then I'll just, like, learn it and then sing with it or, I don't know, just learn the, the melody itself. It's really fun. Uh, and then... Yeah, I'm also into cinema. Like, I just really like film. There's something about it to me, especially like old classic films. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, for example, is one that uh, I love quite dearly, uh, getting into like the cinematography and the history and like, what, what did it mean? You know, it was clearly a movie that was predicting the future, but you know, that future didn't quite come in the way that we expected. So there's a lot to it that was kind of interesting uh, that I liked there. And talking about the future, I just remember that you also were or are into virtual reality. Oh, yeah. Well, sorry. It's so funny because, like, yeah, I followed virtual reality from its early days when it was just, you know, uh, Palmer Lucky and those guys at uh, um, the Consumer Electronics Show, and they brought their kind of just, like, crappy duct taped, you know, whatever. <laughs> so it was the thing that I had seen from there, and actually even right here you can see my uh, Oculus version 1. Uh, but I haven't picked it up as much recently. Like, I got a gaming PC, and I, I played Half-Life Alex, and, like, it was an amazing experience. Like, that's probably the pinnacle of what VR has achieved so far. But, um, you know, like, Facebook, they bought Oculus, and, and they were, obviously, Facebook is a social company. Their plans are to create a social space within, you know, Oculus, within VR. And they had Horizons, and they were, you know, teasing it, but I, it still hasn't, like, I don't know what, like, it hasn't come out, or, like, I, I don't know what the story is there. Um, so, anyway, it's, it's clearly still finding its foothold and it's uncertain exactly what it's but it's it definitely has a big future like that's one of the technologies that i'm the most excited about well that sounds interesting but you know also diving more into the longevity side i'm very very curious to know if there were any i don't know childhood experiences or something that you got exposed to that led you to discover longevity or rediscover it 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, when we say longevity, what we mean is, you know, try, using bioengineering to try to make people live longer. And some people are okay with, like, an extra five or ten years. I, for one, would prefer that we work on the types of ideas that would give us radical longevity, like living twice as long or three times as long, that kind of thing. Um, so, and it's something that I don't think enough people talk about in the longevity space, and I can kind of see why potentially, but for me, it comes from a place of, like, just frankly, a fear of mortality. It's like, I, I love life, and I think there is way more interesting stuff coming in, like, the farther future that I would love to witness and I'd love to experience, and I just want more of it. Um, maybe it's a bit selfish, maybe that's a bit <laughs> arrogant, or I don't know, something to say that I want more than what I've been given, but if, if there's a shot, then why not? So, you know, I kind of figured this out for myself in grade 10, and then in grade 11, I realized, like, okay, I've got to become a scientist, I've got to, like, contribute to the field, I've got to, you know, use bioengineering principles to try to just do something myself to help us try to live longer. Um, and then fortunately, you know, I'm not alone. There's like a whole bunch of other people that are also working on the problem of longevity and are inspired by it. And obviously we just have like biotech as an industry and biology as like a, a science that has been studied for uh, centuries, obviously, um, that is contributing to the, you know, we're standing on their shoulders. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. And, you know, fortunately we do have some champions on our side that are, are making it more likely that within our lifetimes we may be able to do something. You know, we had some technical problems, but I remember hearing uh, some minutes ago that you mentioned philosophy. Is there any relation there? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, like, what do you think happens when you die, Sophie? Oh, <laughs> I personally would say you just stop existing, you know, your body just... Um, converts into other things, you know, matter just gets transformed, and that's the end. <laughs> and how does it make you feel that that is the case? And like, so would your, will it be kind of like a dreamless sleep forever? Like, is that it? And then how does that make you feel if that's the case? Like, do you feel kind of just like, all right, cool, dreamless no. sleep forever? Like, <laughs> I feel no, scared, right? honestly, yeah. Yeah, so then that's it. That's literally, like, when, when I say it's philosophy, it's like, That, in a sense, is kind of like a core fact of our lives, that it's something that, like, when you really kind of, like, clue into it and you, like, really get the profundity of what that means, then it should inform, I think, the decisions of the rest of your life, like how you live, how you live it and, like, what you decide to enjoy and, like, what it, we decide to do with our, with our time and energies. And especially, so I can see how, you know, if we had this realization 300 years ago when, you know, we're not even close to even approaching anything like a solution to aging for the human body, then yeah, live happily, be merry, you know, have a career, have a family, like, just do the normal human things and just pass on and like, whatever, this is out of your control entirely. Whereas now it feels like, I don't like, it's still very uncertain. And I'm not claiming that we are at a spot where we could potentially, you know, like actually do something. Um, but it feels at least more like technology is really allowing us to be somewhat powerful. Like we are, even though CRISPR is like just barely now getting us in there to be able to edit genes, you know, really we'd like to be able to edit the genes of trillions of cells in an entire living organism on the fly. Like that would be really powerful stuff. We're not there, but it feels like at least we're on the ladder that's getting us there. Um, and then it's a question of whether our life uh, lifetimes are going to be long enough for us to, um, you know, progress with the technology and, and get us personally to a point. And if not, then at least we led an interesting career, right? Like we at least contributed to a field that um, in the future will lead to generations that can live longer. It'll be ironic or like kind of sad that we will have like led them there and we ourselves will not participate. But uh, again, out of our control. Wow. Yeah. And I guess that the question of whether we will, let's say, become somewhat immortal before the end of the century, I guess that we will leave it for, for the end of this episode. Uh, yeah. And for now, you know, continuing with your career, I guess, can you tell us a little bit about your iGEM experience? Yeah. So uh, I went to the University of Waterloo out of high school. I didn't do any research on, well, sorry, I did some research on the universities, but I didn't think about student clubs and stuff. Like, I just didn't know about iGEM at all. So I just went assuming that I would focus on academics and find professors and find labs and whatever and just, like, do that. And then one year in my microbiology class, you know, I was talking to some kids and they were like, hey, you know what, like, iGEM sounds like you should know about iGEM. Like, you, you, it would be right up your alley. Because um, I, I had had an internship at a company where I was pitching them, you know, like, we should be, like, modifying the, like, um, the 
the genome of this microbe that goes in your eye because it will like if you could produce this protein that this other master student is working on then it could make it like lubricated and like that's an iGEM project right like I, I literally was pitching these people an iGEM project and they gave me a hundred dollars to like pursue it I thought that was great um Anyway, so then I was telling this kid about it, and then he told me about iGEM, and I was like, yes. And I remember being so nervous from my iGEM interview, being like, okay, are they going to accept me? This is a big deal. And I was like, I did a bunch of research, and I thought I would like, okay. And then I obviously I was like a perfect, like, it was a good fit. So it just made sense that they, they got me in there. And so I started in 2013, you know, I was kind of just an incoming, you know, and they already had at the University of Waterloo kind of years, a bit of a history of iGEM uh, and iGEMers. Um, and then 2014, 2015, uh, so I was part of the team for those years. I was part of, you know, three different projects, uh, which was awesome. Those are some of, like, the golden golden times. For me, it was kind of like getting into university. The whole point, you know, again, with this kind of, like, thesis of let's do something in bioengineering to improve our longevity, it's like, wow, there's a lab that I can just work at with these people that just start building tools now. And so that's so appealing to me that I just kind of, like, stopped focusing as much on grades and more on just, like, that, that that just became a new priority of course um, yeah yeah because it's like I'm just here we are at a lab building stuff and like these are the core tools that I'm going to need for my future whatever with, with bioengineering so um, yeah anyway that yeah built a number of different projects you know obviously iGEM with every iGEM team there's drama there's like glory there's you know, the whole spectrum of everything because you're it's a bunch of people trying something so hard and like it's just human nature that people are gonna there's gonna be some conflict and and you know, stories and obviously also like happiness and uh and success in some, in some cases but um yeah i don't know i recommend iGEM to anybody interested in synthetic biology um it continues to be something that i uh, I love dipping my toes into. That was exactly one of my questions. If you would recommend someone to participate or why wouldn't you actually? Uh, I wouldn't if you're not interested in, if you have no skill and are not interested whatsoever in bioengineering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But if, if you have Fair some enough. skill, if you have some interest, definitely, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing that everybody should, I think everybody could do. Yeah. And I, you know, previously asked you this, but for everyone to know, did Acorn had something to do with iGEM or what was the story or the evolution of iGEMer to founder of Acorn? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So at the beginning, when I had the idea for Acorn, um, I was in the iGEM circles and I... Uh, you know, when I first had the idea, I wrote it a little white paper and I, I recognized that we could like grab funding. So I kind of like put it all together and I had a little microscope and I was already kind of starting to set up out of the, out of the iGEM lab a little bit just to see if I could make something happen. Uh, and then I, I you know, I, I, I reached out to the iGEM people and I said, hey, like just I think it was like eight or nine people on that email just being like, who's interested? Like, I'm, I think I'm going to start this thing. Like, who wants to join me? And so I had a number of them, you know, kind of reach back out a little more favorably. And then you can imagine it's this hodgepodge of like, well, actually, before that, I had a number of other people that were somewhat interested, but then they fell off. <laughs> you know, in university, there are students looking for opportunities all the time to kind of like pad their CV and just like do stuff right outside of their regular classes that, uh, you know, it's, a, it's good. It's a good exercise. Um, but you know, there's varying levels of seriousness and like a degree of kind of like, okay, this is like really going to be a thing I'm like committed to and focused on and like, I'm serious about. Um, and so, uh, anyway, so three students from, was it three, uh, I guess it was two from iGEM. And then I also made a post on Facebook, uh, on the, one of the Facebook uh, groups for the business students. And I said like, Hey, doing a company, some iGEMers, whatever. I need a business student. So I brought on a business student. Um, and then together with that team, I pitched for the 25K. So this is the prize at Waterloo, the University of Waterloo. You can get $25,000 for an idea you have for a startup. And so I, you know, with them and their support, I, we got that prize. Um, but then after that, you know, within a few months, it became clear that like the level of commitment that I had versus the level that they had was misaligned. And, you know, it, then it gets into kind of like equity conversations and like oh. how much, you know, like how much is each person. And then like, Anyway, so it gets a little messy, but at the end of that story, and we had a number of other people from iGEM as well at that point volunteering. Um, so they were just volunteering, like without any interest in equity whatsoever. They were like literally just there helping. And so to me, as the person who had kind of like, you know, taken the initiative to start this thing and was pitching and was clearly in a kind of like CEO spot, I made a decision to say like, okay, listen, we've got to renegotiate or you're at, you know, that kind of like call. Sure. Uh, and so then... You know, I, they ended up going out. And so we brought on, uh, you know, the people that were in the wings, the people that were volunteering and who clearly had just kind of 
I don't know. I, anyway, so that's, that's how it ended up working out. Uh, and then also another friend that I had from a different lab that was unrelated to iGEM, uh, Patrick, he, uh, he was a roommate of mine and he was kind of like, you know, witnessing this whole drama. And then he, he it was perfect. He was working on a master's in uh, uh, cell biology and specifically like cell damage and like, you know, the, the kinds of things that were like basically perfect for Acorn that we needed. Um, and so it just made sense. And we were best friends. So he became more, I would say, like kind of a core co-founder early on. Um, and, you know, he's a best friend of mine to this day. Uh, and then, yeah, so that's that's the kind of connection. It's a bit of a messy goop <laughs> between iGEM and Acorn. And it ended up being that basically none of the iGEM people ended up on like you know, what I would consider, like, really the co-founding story, although, like, they were, you can see how it's a little messy, right? Like, there were periods of time there where they were clearly supportive and they were clearly part of the initiative, but then they dropped off. They didn't have as much, you know, contribution, potentially, but some, but not, you know what I mean? So it's a little bit messy. Hmm, I see. But what I understand for this from this story is that you founded Acorn while you were still an undergrad? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was and, in third year. And uh, so you've also mentioned that you wanted to kind of uh, put grades a little bit more apart and then start building more things, which is clearly what you did. So how did you manage this? Did you just like say, look, oh, let's start a company, let's focus on this? Or how did you personally manage it? Uh, it was tough, you know? I didn't really have a social life. It was my bread and butter. I remember there was like another founder who I respected, he was the founder of Highly on Displays. We were on a panel together and there was a number of students at Waterloo who were aspiring entrepreneurs, whatever, and they asked this question, like how do you balance school with, with what you're doing? And he answered the question first. And I remember <laughs> just loving his answer. He was like, what else are you doing right now with your time? Like this, this is the most exciting, interesting thing that I can think of to be working on. So it's what I'm spending all my time doing. Like what project or thing are you working on right now that is taking up so much of your time? Like we all have 18 hours in our day. Like how are you allocating yours? Um, it was kind of like that, right? And I just like mm -hmm. perfectly agreed. I was like, absolutely. And you can imagine for me, especially since Acorn was like, as a concept perfectly aligned with my ideas in longevity, of course, this is my my priority. And then everything else was kind of like, okay, these are things that I kind of have to do potentially to like, um, uh, I don't know, to supplement or to like make sure I don't like let loose ends fall out and whatever the details as opposed to like the core thing, right? Sure. And I wonder after that, did you have a plan for, you know, becoming a PhD or going down that route? Or when you founded Acorn, did that change? Yeah, so I had actually, right as I was founding Acorn, um, I, I was having conversations with uh, labs that had wanted to recruit me to be a PhD for them. Um, some of them were pretty excited. You know, I was like doing some interesting work with Acorn and, sorry, not Acorn yet. <laughs> with iGEM, yeah, Acorn wasn't a thing yet. So with iGEM and with another lab, uh, they were doing mathematical modeling and I had just done some work with them and anyway, whatever. So they were interested in me and like, yeah, I think that would have been awesome. They had recently just come off of like a nature publication. They were working on some really interesting regenerative medicine stuff in Arizona. So I would have had to go to the University of Arizona, but fine, I would have done it. Um, and I, going into Waterloo, like, I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. Like, I just imagined I would be just, like, a core academic working on, like, research and just doing the master's PhD route, and that would be me. Like, I was, what else am I going to do, right? Like, that's where the research is happening. That's where bioengineering is being done. But then I think Acorn is an opportunity was unique both in time, like I can do a PhD at any time, but you know, a, a startup that is at the right time and at the right place with these incentives and the people, like everything, it's like, this is kind of special. It's very different, it's unique. And it's like, there's only one time that I'm gonna be able to do this. And honestly, I think it's a more interesting story than like I got a PhD. Um, obviously PhDs are amazing and they, some people do some amazing work in that, but like, um, you know, it, something like starting a company is, is uh, I would say it's, Similar. It's a similar kind of degree of like you're committed and you're building for a long time and you're kind of like heads down um, and maybe building a company is more risky, right? Like with a PhD, very likely you'll end up with a PhD with you after your name. Sure, there's job security questions and like what do you do after that? Do I just do a postdoc and like I'm going to have to live in a lab for the rest of my life? But um, anyway, so yeah, it's, it's an ongoing debate and I still don't sure. have, still to this day I'm considering, you know, what it would look like to do a master's at some point in the near future or even a PhD, I don't know. Interesting. I kind of align with a lot of these ideas. And of course, I think that they're open to interpretation and everyone ha can have their own like path. But I think that we also skipped an important part, which is how did the acorn idea come about? And could you explain us what it is? 
Yeah, yeah, and what even is Acorn, right? Like, yeah, exactly. The abstract, yeah. Uh, okay, so the idea came when I was um, at uh, co-ops, which I'm sure the University of Waterloo loves. The, the co-op program is part of my little story here, but anyway, whatever. It was at the <laughs> University of Waterloo's co-op program, and I noticed that, you know, when you go to these old prof labs or even, like, these old industry labs, they have, like, rows and rows of chemicals. When you look in their chemical cabinets, you just go a couple rows back in one of the kind of, like, top shelves in the back or something, and there's, like, bound to be some, like, ammonia arsenate from, like, 1980 or something, a very te- toxic chemical that probably shouldn't be there. And there's a similar story with the freezers. So, you know, if you go to the really far back of, like, a fr- forgotten negative 80 freezer and you s- scrounge through the frost and you get to the back, there's, like, an old human thumb sample or something from the 50s or who knows, whatever. So, to me, that was, like, interesting. Okay, so, like, samples can survive here through time and then, like, here they are as a thing for us to study now. Like, that's kind of curious, right? And, like, they're frozen, so they will be in the state that they were in many decades before. And then it occurred to me, like, wait, like, what if I did this for myself? What if I just, like, went to all these different freezers and I just took a little bit of my own cells and I stashed them in all these freezers and then, like, 40 years from now, I come back as a postdoc, you know, working whatever (laughs) in some lab. I want to publish an interesting paper. I take some of my own young cells and I compare them to my own old cells. For me at the time, it was an information thought. It was like the young cells are going to contain some information that we're going to be able to assay in a more sophisticated way in the future, right? Like what's going on with the epigenetics or, you know, some epi thing that we don't even understand now and we can measure more precisely and compare that to the old cells and almost use the young cells like a template. It's like, here's the example of what you got to do to get the old cell more like this thing, right? So I was thinking in a very kind of cell forward way. But then it's like, okay, wait, like if the cells are viable, if I freeze viable cells that are alive and can still culture, you can go directly from those cells to stem cells and then from stem cells to everything else, right? So it's like a veritable gold mine. It's like you can literally turn these cells potentially, you know, iPSCs. So I don't know, for everybody listening, this is a fact, you can turn any cell that is alive and viable from your body, um, as long as it will grow and divide in culture, you can then change that cell. Let's say it was a skin cell, you can change it to be uh, a stem cell. Let's just call it a, tem- a stem cell, an induced pluripotent stem cell. And then from there, you can turn it into every other cell of the body, just like that. Well, you know, obviously it's a little more complicated than that, and like <laughs> how they exactly get it for each cell type and how successful they are is like a whole other story, but we can convert it back to this iPSC, this kind of like cell that could become every other cell. So anyway, okay, so I was like, wow, there's a lot of value here. I definitely have to do this. So at least for myself, I was like, I definitely have to just do this for myself. It costs so little and I might as well do it. And then it occurred to me like, okay, wait, other people might wanna do this. And me literally stashing myself in all these freezers isn't a very like secure option, right? (laughs) Like I literally thought about just like, First of all, I Googled it. Like, is there a service that I can just like give my sample to and they'll just freeze it for me for decades? And there wasn't. And then I thought, okay, what if I just buy a liquid nitrogen dewer for myself and I just like keep that stored? No, it's like too expensive. And like, really, I'm just gonna like go around with a liquid nitrogen dewer everywhere that I like and I have to refill it all the time. It's like a whole thing. So community was the answer, right? It's like, so you get a thousand friends or 10,000 people that are interested in the same concept, right? Banking their own young cells for their own old self, like the same excitement that I got by the idea, I'm sure other people will have too. And then it was like, okay, that's where the ball got rolling. It's like, okay, so, uh, and by the way, so the way Acorn is pitched now is basically just the stem cell angle, right? So it's like, there's a very exciting future in regenerative medicine, things like 3D bioprinting, right? Our ability to, 3D print actual tissues and organs or uh, things like CAR-T where you take the immune system and you like modify it and you put it back in and it's more aggressive against cancer. You know, if you start from a younger version, then it's actually more likely to work. It's more robust, you know, younger cells from your immune system are better than older ones. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's the kind of angle that Acorn uses now for its, for its service for its customers. But um, yeah, sorry, anyway, I think that kind of answers it. The origin story and then uh, also, yeah, where it is now and kind of what it is. Sure, that answers it in a nutshell. Storing your young cells and keeping them alive so you can then turn them into stem cells, I guess. So you're not directly um, taking stem cells, right? You're just taking, uh, I don't know, a sample of other cells and then people can turn them into stem cells? Right. So originally we thought, okay, what kind of cell should we take, right? Like it would work to chop off your pinky finger and freeze the whole finger, but that's not very viable, right? Like nobody's going to want to do that. I don't even want to do that. So what do you do? You still want a viable sample of cells. You can get cells that are viable from urine. We thought at the time you might be able to get them from cheek. If you scraped hard enough in your cheek and you went into kind of like just lower down, you literally got some blood in there maybe. Like that was some thinking, but ultimately we landed on plucked hair. 
So at the bottom of a well-plucked hair, there's the root follicle, right? Like the, it's a mini organ. It's the thing that produces, you know, all the keratin that becomes your hair. Um, and so that itself actually does have some multipotent stem cells as part of that population that you freeze down. Wow, amazing. And now, you know, going again back to a more future state in the story, you entered Y Combinator. And my question for here is, what do you think made Acorn so successful at that point? Or, uh, yeah, of course, at this point, too, but back then, too. Yeah, I would. I mean, it's arguable whether Acorn is very successful. Um, I think it's like found some success, but it's like you know, twenty three and Me level is very successful, okay. and it definitely has not reached that. Um, so, um, my, yeah, just my standard for success is I think pretty high. Uh, so. Okay, what got us into Y Combinator was a little bit serendipitous, actually. But I think, like, so we had to go through two levels. One, there was, like, a weird Snapchat competition. Believe it or not, Justin Kahn, who's the founder of Twitch TV, he was hosting a, a, like, you would take over his Snapchat, pitch your company on his Snapchat, and then he would judge, and that would get you an interview for Y Combinator. So that was the way to do the application. And we had this very, like, funny, quirky, you know, like, it was, it was, and we had our lab, and it was, it was fun. So we did a fun little thing, and he commented on it. He's like, he thought it was great. And he, we had a little thing where he could go online, and he could like actually pay five dollars to reserve a spot he never used his spot by the way anyway <laughs> so uh, he could reserve a spot for five dollars and you know he, he did it he was supportive he was like yeah i really like this whatever anyway so then the next stage was uh doing an interview with adora chung who uh, i should really know this but she was the founder of like a popular like a popular maid service i believe in california and so she was like kind of a a partner at Y Combinator. She had kind of made it already herself. And so that's why she was the interviewer. Um, and it was, a, it's funny, it was like literally 10 minutes. And I think they still do this. It's a 10 minute interview, just very direct questions and quick and like, can you answer this? Can you answer that? And I think on top of the actual quality of the answers themselves, they're looking at like the, the confidence and the quality of the people behind it. So it's a bit of an assessment of both of those things. And um, after that, we got in. Sorry, was that your question? How you got into Y Combinator? Yeah, actually, well, part of the success of getting into Y Combinator, but also you mentioned at the end, like the skills that an entrepreneur may have. So do you think that there were certain skills that helped you navigate that? Interesting. No, honestly, I don't think I had, like, I had not studied entrepreneurship. I had not, like, studied previous entrepreneurs. I think, like, just as a person who was, like, nerdy about, like, I was following Elon Musk, for example, and I was following Palmer Lucky, and, like, yeah, I was following, like, VR and what was going on there, and, like, I think I've just always been in, like, Kickstarter and Pebble. Like, I I was very aware of what was going on with, like, the startup scene at Waterloo, even if I wasn't, at the time, thinking about how it would apply to myself at the time, for for myself. Um, So... Yeah, and then like I would say, what like one of the strengths of Y Combinator, obviously on top of its community, the fact that they make an investment, and then the fact that they introduce you to investors afterwards, um, to like have you know actually substantial money behind your idea after, um, it's their wisdom, right? It's like a culture that they have, um, you know, like fail fast or like hire slowly, fire fast, you know, like these kind of like little tidbits of, of, of Silicon Valley wisdom that they're trying to export to the rest of the world, who and who they hope are going to create interesting startups as well. Um, that infected me. And I think it's rightly so. I, I think, you know, after you assess kind of what their thinking is, one thing though is that it's like, you could kind of tell that a lot of their advice was geared towards software startups um, because that is most of what the successes were and to this day are from uh, Y Combinator with the exception of Ginkgo, by the way, in your <laughs> background. Sure. Uh, um, but uh, it, it was it was a little funny because what they expected from us were metrics that looked like software metrics. And at the time, they had not yet developed their thinking around milestones for you know hardware and biology companies that have a longer production cycle, right? Like it takes longer to just even get a first customer. And for us, we couldn't just launch a product. <laughs> Because you know our very the very first iteration of our product has to be perfect, right? We're like literally banking your cells now. You're giving us a bunch of money, and you're going to pay ongoing. The quality of those cells better be really good, you know. Like, we, and how do we guarantee that? How do we know that, right? Like, so we a lot of thought and a lot of like intense kind of like research had to go into like how do we guarantee that the cells that we're banking have a certain fidelity of like you know confidence that we're like, look, we did these tests. Here's how we know. Here's like the background of like how we got there. Um, so yeah, they, that was one kind of maybe tension point is they were like, just how can you launch? How can you get to sales? How can you show growth? Because that's what they wanted to be able to show to the investors that were coming at the end of the you know demo day. That's what they were thinking. 
I find really interesting what you say about this con contrast, I guess, between tech startups and biotech startups at YC that could still exist even now. So how did you deal with that? Were there, do you have any examples of how they gave you this knowledge and you couldn't apply it or you could apply it to biotech? Um, yeah, like I think Acorn is unique as a company because, you know, while we did have to do some development, like it was much less than a lot of other companies would ever have to do to get to like a product that they just sell directly to people like on the street. I can <laughs> walk up to anybody on the street and sell them Acorn like right now out here in British Columbia and like, boom, it's done. Whereas like, and the reason is because we're neither diagnosing nor treating anything today, right? Like we're saying you should join us in speculating together that it's possible that these cells will eventually become very therapeutically useful. And I believe that thoroughly, like I, th I think it's very likely that they will. Um, but like that is what makes Acorn a little bit unique. So we actually did have some, especially after we did end up launching, some synergies with the kind of like core principles and mindsets from my Combinator. It's just we weren't quite ready for that when we were going through the actual program. And so we ended up just kind of not doing that. Like we we, we showed growth through pre-orders. That was the one thing like we were able to do, right? Like we haven't launched a product, so we can sell you on getting a spot to eventually when we do go, you'll, you're first in line, right? That kind of thing. Um, and we had some sales, like we were able to show some sales and that helped us with uh, getting an investment, yeah. Hmm. Interesting, so do you think that still that wisdom and that kind of fail fast thing or sales and launch the product, all that wisdom, was it the most valuable part of YC? It's the most lasting part, I think, for me. I don't know. At the time, I wasn't as much of a community person. Like, I didn't really see as much of the value in just kind of, like, being part of the YC community itself. And, like, I, I was part of their chess group for a while. And, like, I kind of connected with some founders. But, like, I, I, it didn't seem like they were going to be super helpful for our mission in particular. They were on their own missions, right? Like, why, why, are, why am I, like networking with these other, but I mean, now I see the real value. Like, obviously, it would have been awesome if I had, like, networked super thoroughly with some of the other. So... Yeah, I think most of the value at the end of the day is in those kind of like the, the wisdom that, so it's not just wisdom that you just like read on their website, but it's also like you read and then you like apply it and then you're like, whoa, in my like actual startup, like I've got to face this decision and like here's the wisdom and like how do I apply it, right? Like and then it's in the experience of trying to apply that wisdom that I think I got the most out of it, yeah. Now I'm very excited about this next question, which is if IndieBio had been an option at that moment, do you think you would have joined it instead of YC? So here's the thing. I think I'm actually a little scared of IndieBio. Oh. And the reason is, yeah, well, the reason is because they are like legit sciencey people, right? Like mm -hmm. a lot of the people that go through IndieBio are PhDs and like MDs now. And like it's becoming a whole thing where it's like we're kind of back to square one where like originally before this whole startup phase, the only people that were starting companies were like they were going to do, they were profs, people with PhDs who like had titles and stuff. And like those are the people that were starting companies and rightly so potentially, right? Like if you're doing small molecules, going through clinical trials, who's going to invest $50 million, $100 million, whatever, into people to go put a drug through clinical trials unless they were already qualified, right? True. So I think like what was nice about going through Y Combinator and the more kind of Silicon Valley was that you had the you had pockets of money that were trying to explore new business models that weren't software, but like they didn't have any of the preconceived notions of the classic investors, right? So it helped that we were in that. Uh, yeah, I, so because Acorn, like, yeah, I, it, yeah, it, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you kind of get what I'm saying, but like it, it felt like a better fit given that we like, I didn't have credentials. I didn't even have a degree. Like and all, none of my co-founders had degrees. We were just had an interesting idea and like actually ready to execute on it. And like we could do it. It was just like, we don't need, I don't think we need degrees for this. Like we could just do it. Um, and then, yeah, we were pretty confident that we could. So Anyway, that's, that's, I think, the major difference. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe IndieBio does have a bit more of, like, a leniency toward credentialism. Um, and maybe they do accept younger founders. Because, you know, I was, like, what, 23 at the time when I when I did Y Combinator? Maybe 22? Yeah, 22. And, like, who am I? I had some iGym experience and I worked some labs, sure. Like, but, yeah, is that really, like, super duper? Um, so, anyway, I don't know. That that was my... But, and here's the thing. I'm clearly being a little defensive and a little bit jumpy about it because, like, maybe that's wrong. Maybe I was thinking the wrong way. Maybe I should have just gone through something like IndieBio instead. I don't know. 
That's interesting because maybe you you would have said something like IndieBio has more limitations, like the entry barrier may have been higher in that sense. You know, the degree they may have had I don't know more more bias, as you say. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All right, but you had an amazing opportunity at YC, so that's great. And um, so what was the hardest part of being a biotech entrepreneur in those early days? You know, you mentioned like those differences between advice for tech startups and biotech startups. Was there anything different to that? Yeah, I, I think, and maybe this is just a me thing, but I think every once in a while we'd be like in a meeting and, you know, we'd be like, okay, these people finished this thing, but they have these issues. And okay, these other people, they, they finished their thing, but they have these other issues. And like, I have to make a decision or like I have to guide or I have to like figure out where do we go now? Or like, what, okay, what's now, what, now, what experiment do we do? Like what thing do we, like, what should we focus on? Like, there's just so many little unknowns that kind of like pile up and maybe this was just me, but like, I kind of just kept, uh, I don't know, just freezing up or just like, what do I, okay, uh, what do we, what do we do now? Like, I don't, it's because there's so many options. There's like really a lot of places that you can take at any given, like any given week. Um, and so many things you can focus on. And then like what you decided was a good idea, you know, last month, you're like, oh, that was such a bad idea. And all the research and all the time that we spent on that, it's like, ah, oh, that data is not really useful. We should start a whole new thing now. And like, here's where we're going to really start. And then you do another month and you're like, mm, even that month wasn't really great. Okay. Well we should, so I think deciding where to go. Yeah. And especially with bio where it's like, you have to develop, like you have to build like, and there's some uncertainty too, right? It's like, okay, we think if we expose the cells to this thing and then we run them through this experiment, we're going to get this result. And then like, there's so many little variables that get screwed up along the way, but then you get the result and you're like, "Mm, was that exactly the result we're looking for? And like, you need to do that in a certain amount of time because you have to hit milestones so that you can go back to investors and raise more money. So like, um, I, I think that's the biggest thing. It's like getting this milestone thinking in the head of investors and the conversations that you have, and then like actually being able to execute on those milestones. So like, it's the classic kind of like set ambitious milestones, but not so ambitious that you can't hit them. And you end up sitting in those meetings with your team where you're like, wow, we're behind. We need ideas. Like, how are we going to like make this thing happen? We, we need more experiment time. Like, uh, you know, all this data is not good, but this data is looking okay. Like, um, I don't know, maybe it can be messy and, and maybe this is me being a little bit, uh, uh, what do you call it? What's that? It's a very popular term now where you get uh, intimate or uh, anyway, whatever. <laughs> I'm revealing, revealing my cards that I, you know, maybe it was a little more messy than I could have been. Maybe I, I wasn't as good of like a, a visionary as I might have thought where like I, I should have been able to make some core decisions better um, than I did. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the thing. Do you think that there was any chicken egg problem in the sense that we need more money to make more, to innovate more, develop more, but then we need to develop more to get that funding? Sometimes. That definitely happens sometimes, but I would say like, yeah, not, not most of the time. For, for Acorn, it wasn't, I don't think money was really as much of a problem as, as it could have been potentially. Um, I mean, sometimes though, like, you know, there are some devices that we would have really liked to had, um, have, uh, like early on, we used these, what are they called? Scepter pipettes. So they can like do cell counts really quickly, but they have these tips that are $25 each. So every time you do a little cell count, it's like, boom, $25, boom, $25. And it's just like in the pipette itself was like $3,000. And I was just like, do we need this thing? And like, it's super expensive every day that we use it. And like, we better write down the data really, really well. But even that's not that expensive, right? Like, as far as devices go, like, then we upgraded. And eventually, when we got, like, our real amount of funding, we eventually raised over $3 million. We bought a a twin set of... um, I really should know exactly what these microscopes are. Uh, Anyway, they're very fancy microscopes that can do all sorts of imaging at like very high fidelity, basically like automated confocal microscopes. And they look like big rectangles with like fancy lights and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And... uh, so I guess like eventually we did get the instruments that we needed to do exactly the tests that we needed to do. But, um, I don't know, we made it work. Like bootstrapping was okay. Like even in the early, early days, I got to the biology department, like I had my microscope from high school. I literally brought it in and we were using that. And like, I got, I borrowed a micro, um, a hemocytometer. So that's just like a little piece of glass with like some, uh, square cuts on it so that you can like count the number of cells that are there. That was one of the ways that we were measuring things. And I bought a, a cytofloor from eBay for $300 and we figured out how to boot that thing up. And like, I don't know, you bootstrap, you kind of work your way. 
And talking about bootstrapping, some say that for biotech, the challenge is scaling. So I wonder if this was a problem for Acorn or what other kind of biotech challenges Acorn has faced. Yeah. So again, I think Acorn is a little bit unique in that like we had to do some cell viability science and we had to know how to scale that. But I don't think that challenge was even like that great. Like we came up with our own patented media for how to transport cells. And like we have our own technique for how to like do the analysis and like what our standards are for analysis. But a lot of that realistically is based on existing literature, which is like the best thing we could do, right? Like we could come up with our own methods, but like are we really going to validate based on brand new methods that we came up with, which like could be interesting, but like people are just going to want the like classic methods, right? Like using the best equipment. So we basically just had to get up to a point where we could do that. That was kind of like our scale and it, it sorry, that was some work, but it wasn't like, you know, uh, it wasn't zero to one kind of work. Um, and then customer scaling was the next problem, right? Like that was really for us, like, and that's, this is the kind of thing that you just, I, and I don't really understand, honestly, in bio, biotech, classic biotech, where you're developing like a small molecule drug, for example, you take it through clinical trials and then you're like, wow, successful. It has this awesome hit rate. You know, we, we're doing really well. What, what happens like there? I actually have no idea. If you talk to like Shoppers Drug Mart and you're like, hey, we want to put this on your shelves. Like what are those conversations? I actually really don't know what those conversations are like. But for Acorn, it really like because we had such a unique, unconventional business model to begin with, right? Like we're we're telling people that we want to just go straight up to like, you know, regular folks on the street or like people on Reddit's longevity forums, right? Like uh, or futurist forums and just convince them like, hey, you should be banking your young selves. It's kind of like 23andMe. So how did they scale? They just convinced the common person, like, you should get your genes sequenced and we're going to give you some information about it and it'll be really cool. Um, and so for us, I think it was, yeah, and we still haven't figured out at scale, honestly. Uh, Acorn has a good number of customers and I'm pretty sure it's self-sustaining at this point and, like, it's it's good, but it's not, like, breakthrough. You know, it's not 23andMe level, you know, millions of customers kind of thing. So, um, yeah, we still haven't actually figured out how to scale on the customer side. Interesting. Not not yet, at least. So okay. where is Acorn right now? And do you still run it? No, 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 no. So, okay. Well, uh, about, let's say, two years in, two and a half years in, um, I, I met an investor from Toronto named Drew Taylor. He was working at uh, a firm called Epic Capital. And uh, he was was... It was awesome because he was the only person that I had talked to as an investor who actually like knew what he was talking about biologically because he had a PhD in bioengineering. Oh. Um, and so anyway, he went from being an advisor to somebody that was like even much closer and we were kind of making decisions together. And then like it, it just made sense. Like after a while, he, he pitched me actually on joining the company full time. But of course, given that he was like, you know, 10 years more senior, he already had his own wealth and his own kind of, um, you know, network and connections in Toronto that he would take over being CEO of the company. Um, so at that point, I had a little conversation with myself, right? And fortunately, I found uh, this great Harvard Business Review article called, uh, oof, I forget, I forget what it's called, but The Founder's Dilemma. I'm pretty sure it's called The Founder's Dilemma. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it, 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 what, what they draw out is, do you want to be rich or do you want to be king? So what that means is, do you want to be the king of your startup, which means you retain all control, you don't let new people in kind of thing, you don't let new investment in, but you're the king of probably something that doesn't end up growing, probably something that doesn't end up actually being big. Or do you want to be rich, which I don't know why they define it as rich, but essentially like you give up control in the right opportunistic and like optimal kind of ways, and the company is much more likely to actually be successful. And even if you're not king anymore, you've given up control, You, it's actually the best thing for the company and even yourself personally, right? at the end of the day. So that was perfect logic for me, it helped me make the decision and it was obvious you know, that I just should. And so then I went on to be COO and Drew took over as CEO at that point. Mm. So now Drew is actually still running the company to this day uh, in Toronto. Um, uh, yeah, and so uh, where's Acornet now? Right, so Acorn is growing. It's at a number of different clinics across the country. Um, its model is kind of evolving, right? Like anybody can kind of walk in and just bank their cells if they want, you know, just give them a call, like go on their website. I'm sure there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. Awesome. Uh, even, in, even in Vancouver, actually, I'm going to be doing a collection for them. Um, but also they're doing a number of different partner clinics now where um, you know, people that are already going to the clinic for other reasons can, you know, there's like nurses that are on hold or like whatever, they can just have their cells banked, like plucked, sorry, their hairs plucked, shipped back and then banked. So they're kind of like developing the business model that way. 
That's very interesting because I'd always had that question. You know, we've known each other for like a year now, but I've never asked that. And I guess that the next step in your career, if we can call it like that, was entering yeah. TKS. So what's the story behind that? What caught your attention about it? Yeah, yeah. So I guess for me, it was like, it kind of goes back a little bit to the core philosophy that got me into doing Acorn in the first place, which was like, I want to work on bioengineering and longevity in order to like help us live longer. But like one of the core reasons I want to live longer is because I love life. Uh, sorry, I love life so much, like itself. Um, and here I am, like it would be the greatest dramatic irony. Sorry, not dramatic irony. <laughs> I'm getting my words ahead of myself a little bit here. Uh, it would be the greatest existential irony ever if I spent my entire life sacrificing all of the fruits of life just so that I could work on this project and it didn't end up going anywhere anyway, right? So um, I still want to be able to get to enjoy some of my life. And, uh, you know, it, it had been a good five-year kind of grind at Acorn. Uh, after we launched product, it became more kind of like marketing, sales, communications, um, which is, you know, obviously important and great work, but it's just not what was in my wheelhouse directly, right? I was more into the science and the innovation and like how do you create it from scratch. So, um, you know, Naveed, who's the founder of TKS, he reached out to me, he heard me on a podcast and he said, hey, I think it'd be great uh, at giving us a lecture here at TKS. And I was like, all right, cool. So I come in and then, you know, there he is, Naveed, and he's, he's got a bunch of students on this like 16th floor of like PwC tower and like they're all hacking. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> and then he like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, you can do a lecture. But like, how do you feel about being a director? And I was like, whoa, what do you, whoa, oh, oh, this is what's going on. Oh, okay. And then, so I, I considered it. And then he offered Vancouver and, you know, he wanted to start a program there anyway. And for me, Vancouver is just like a gorgeous place. So I get to kind of like rediscover, you know, my, what I some of the things that I love to do, skateboarding, snowboarding, mountain biking, you know, a little bit more of social life, that kind of thing. And so for me, it was kind of like a bit of a balance that I was, that I'm now kind of like, okay, late last few years of my twenties, I really want to kind of like enjoy life a little bit more thoroughly right now. Um, and TKS is awesome. Like TKS is this kind of like brain soup of ideas of people that are doing all these projects in zero to one type thinking. It's just like, I would love to be a TKS student and like <laughs> getting to be a director here is just like awesome. It's the best job in the world. It's, it's, it's really kind of amazing. So, um, uh, yeah, that's, that transition happened. Um, and I am now a brand ambassador for Acorn. So I tell the story of Acorn and, and people hear about it and maybe they're interested. Maybe, I'm sure they will. And finally, were, what are, you know, are there any future plans for Steven? You know, I know you like embryology. I also know you like VR. You're into TKS. Anything coming up? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think I'll do TKS for another few years. Um, uh, I really like it as an organization and the people, and it's just, it's really quite impressive. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I'm interested in embryology. I have my embryology textbook open on my kitchen counter, and I flip through that every once in a while, try to force myself to, like, stay up with what's going on. Um, I'm interested in crypto as well. Like, there's a lot of things doing going on there, and there's even one which is, like, so uh, you probably know Vitalik Buterin. He recently donated about, three, I think it was $300 million to um, Aubrey de Grace Foundation, and, like, that's great. Like, there's more people that are kind of, like, at this intersection between, you know, this kind of, like, fast-moving tech world and their desire for longevity, and, like, some interesting things are happening there. And there's, a, there's one called VitaDAO. Everybody should hear about this VitaDAO. It's, uh, they're trying to create kind of, like, a governance structure for people that invest in their token to then distributed out to different labs who you know then would go on to get ip or create startups and then the upside of that would come back into the token and that would the token value would obviously go up and the initial investors in the token would get their you know, appreciation back so anyway i like that concept but i actually think there's there's a better concept i i'm like i'm flirting with the idea of competing with them and I, it's funny because like i'm kind of doing this openly like I, I i go to their they host a little clubhouse thing and i'm like they know me like i i talk to them and i'm like i'm there and, and i'm in their discord and i'm like hanging out and um anyway i pitched them at one point on making it a little bit more like a marketplace for mm -hmm. scientists so like a research gate mixed with a v kind of con uh, concept um, and I, I think it would be, it'd be kind of brilliant, but anyway, so that's something that I'm flirting with that I think it'd be cool to start up, but I, I haven't actually like executed. I haven't put it into action yet. Uh, and then otherwise, um, I don't know, like I, I have stalked a few profs. I'm like, you know, but it's like, I'm flirting with the idea of like, okay, you know, I, I took a break 
from the kind of like traditional academic route that I had thought that I would do in the first place to do ACORN. And now it's like, maybe there's a universe where I go back. And, uh, and I, I do finish a PhD because while I do kind of resent the idea that in science, there's this kind of credentialism that's going on that like, you know, when they get introduced, so you just have a huge intro title and it's like basically everything that I say from here on out, you better trust because there were a lot of words behind my name. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. And maybe eventually I'll grow to be like that as well. But um, uh, yeah, sorry. It's a struggle I'm still going through. But (laughs) I I recognize the value of going back to having like a thorough actual mentor and like, you know, in bioengineering at a university kind of thing. Interesting. So university, embryology, this marketplace combination between, was was that blockchain and research gate? Sorry. uh, Yeah, the concept would be kind of like a mix between yeah, blockchain, ResearchGate, and BitCloud. If you've heard of BitCloud, it would basically be like a BitCloud for scientists as a competitor to VitaDAO. All of these things you're going to have to Google after as a listener if you're <laughs> actually interested in any of them, but yeah. <laughs> That's super cool. I'm excited about that. Now, yeah, to end, just a list of questions that don't need a long explanation, just uh, sure. to get to know you a little bit better. And sure. One is, what is an important problem that you're interested in that hasn't been solved yet? Aging. Okay, <laughs> sure, that makes sense. Cool. Then Thanks, a Sophie. startup or lab that you'd recommend interning, sorry, uh, checking out. Uh, a startup or lab, so I mean Acorn, um, but other than that, uh, the David Sinclair Lab, Harvard. Okay. Something you strongly believe that many people would disagree with you on, Peter Thiel's Ooh. question. Uh, that, uh, let's say, 95% of all scientists should be working on the longevity problem. Hmm. If you could tweet something that the whole world read, what would that be? <laughs> no, no, I was going to say, we're all going to die, so we should do longevity research. Um, if I could tweet something that the whole world would see, honestly, I think it would be something like that, like, you know, like fun longevity research or something like that, with a link to the relevant subreddits or something. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for all of this, Stephen. I got to know you better. I'm sure that everyone here also did. They may be interested in Acorn. They may go and store their cells to live longer and healthier. So, super cool. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, Sophie. Talking with Stephen is always interesting. And now the reason why I say always is because, fun fact, he's actually the advisor for the iGym team that I am taking part of. You know, he um, just helped us start that because he, you know, already has that iGym experience. And so as a mentor and as a guest of this podcast, I think it was uh, just amazing to, to share some of his thoughts with you. I hope that you have gotten some advice or some insights from this podcast. Please let me know in the Twitter post that I'm going to have for this episode. And let me know if there is any topic or person that you would find interesting to interview. And remember, what time is it? Well, it's time to grow. It's time to grow some biotech. I'll see you soon. Bye.